Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, this is Sean Illing, and I write for Vox about politics, ethics, and philosophy. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Americans love a good moral panic, especially if it involves Satan and pedophiles. Probably the most famous example of this occurred in the 80s and early 90s. There was a wave of outlandish allegations made against daycare centers. It was widely believed, and I swear I'm not making this up, that we had a string of clandestine occult sex rings at daycares where children were being sodomized and forced to drink blood as part of a secret satanic ritual. I know that's a lot. But the hysteria around this was real and pervasive, and it eventually produced what remains the longest and most expensive trial in the history of California, known as the Big Martin Trial of 1983. In today's episode, I talked to Sarah Marshall, co-host of the terrific podcast, You're Wrong About. Marshall is what you might call a professional debunker, but she's much more than that. Her show is all about understanding why we latch onto the stories we latch onto and what that says about us and our culture. Marshall and her co-host, Michael Hobbs, did an entire episode on the satanic panic, and Marshall is currently writing a book about it. So we discuss what the hell happened in the 80s and 90s, how the echoes of that can be seen today in QAnon conspiracies, and what America's penchant for panics reveals about our collective psyche. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me here today. Well, you are the nation's most esteemed devil panic expert. So really, it's an honor to have you here. I might be the most active one on Twitter. Maybe that's it. There's something about like, you can know about the satanic panic or you can make jokes about it a lot. And I'm maybe stronger in the latter. But yeah, I have been famously to people who listen to my podcast and for whom this phrase is ASMR. I've been working on a book about the satanic panic for a few years. Let's step back just a little bit because I worry a lot of people won't know what we're talking about. So let's start (laughs) there. What the fuck happened in the 80s and 90s? What happened? Gosh. Okay, so let's talk about the spark that kind of ignites the fire in my opinion. So in 1980, there is a book called Michelle Remembers that is published by a small company that is run by an editor who decided to make a go of it in publishing. And so this is one of the first books he brings out when it's necessary to try and go into the black. And it is the blockbuster true story of a woman who, with the help of her therapist, has recovered memories of being ritually abused by a satanic cult which her mother joined. And the book becomes a bestseller. The woman and the therapist get married. And the book, by that point, ends up making it into the law enforcement and social worker training courses, which are springing up partly in response to the relatively new, as of the late 70s, revelation that child sexual abuse is really endemic in the United States. And A lot of the data emerging seems to suggest that if you want to figure out how to deal with this problem, you need to look at the home and you need to look at people close to the child. And what Michelle remembers suggests is that, sure, you know, look in those places, but also look at Satanists, because one of the book's messages is that they could be anywhere. And they probably are in your town, because if they've taken over Victoria, British Columbia, which is where Michelle grew up, then... Who is safe? And then the social workers who receive this training, the cops who receive this training, go off looking for satanic cults and Satanists and satanic ritual abuse, and they believe that they find it. Essentially through a combination of 
deciding on specific scenarios that you believe to have happened because you've read about Satanists doing them and then aggressively questioning three-year-olds in a way that means if they say no abuse has taken place, then that means that abuse has taken place and getting them to confirm scenarios of satanic abuse that you have learned about from your literature, literature which because of the form of memory retrieval therapy that Michelle and her therapist have used that others will use in imitation of them will later prove untrustworthy. It's all a house of cards and ultimately the satanic panic is a lot of things, but to me most meaningfully it led to a rash of wrongful convictions of people who were accused of satanically ritually abusing children in cases where either there was perhaps some evidence that some form of child abuse potentially had taken place, perhaps in a way that wasn't provable in a court of law, which is a very high standard of evidence, which, you know, to fail to meet that standard of evidence doesn't mean to fail to show to a reasonable person that it's very likely that something terrible happened here. But perhaps in some of these cases, something did happen, but there's not a single case in any of this where it appears that satanic abuse rather than garden variety child abuse, was present. That was me keeping it as short as possible. How did I do? That was fantastic. But <laughs> can you give us a sense of the scale, right? Like how yeah. many how many incidents were there? I guess the, the case in Southern California is the most known, but was this something that was happening in multiple places around the same time, or was it more or less focused in California? So, yeah, you're, I believe, referring to the McMartin case, which was the first big case, and that happened in Manhattan Beach, California. And one of the interesting things about that is that uh, McMartin starts making massive headlines in 1983, and then from there, it feels as if the spark that has started with the publication of Michelle Remembers and then has leapt into Southern California, partly because we know that some of the workers who were evaluating these children and deciding what kinds of abuses they thought they had been through had been trained specifically with Michelle Remembers, which is a book that also involves miracles worked by the Virgin Mary. And once it's in the news, it starts popping up everywhere. The case in Jordan, Minnesota was one of the earliest, largest cases that ended up also making news for years, some of it national there's a lot of cases in California. There's the Paul Ingram case, which is written about by Lawrence Wright and Remembering Satan happened in the Olympia, Washington area. There's, of course, the case of the West Memphis Three in West Memphis, Arkansas. There was the Country Walk case in the Miami area. There's the Margaret Kelly Michaels case in New Jersey. It's just everywhere. I often think when I think of the satanic panic and this metaphor has only gotten more relevant in the past year or so of the part in Outbreak where Donald Sutherland is standing in front of a map of the United States showing what will happen if this virus gets out of the town in which it's been contained. And it's just, you know, America quickly being overtaken by red dots until the whole country is red dots. You just made me think of Glenn Beck in front of his famous <laughs> chalkboard, like <laughs> mapping out the, the Stalinist takeover of the country. Um, <laughs> I would love to see Donald Sutherland play Glenn Beck, you know, role of a lifetime, no resemblance whatsoever. It would be the only way I could take in some of that rhetoric. Can you give listeners just a flavor of some of the accusations that were leveled here? Because I just don't want to leave it at, you know, devil and right. child abuse. I mean, there's some... There's hearing that something is implausible yeah. and, and hearing the allegation itself. I mean... Yeah. So what was alleged exactly? What were these these witches or, you know, Satanists accused of doing? So the McMartin case, which is one of the first satanic panic cases and the first one to really breach the wall into national news, comes about when a little boy who's two or three years old at the time, his mother becomes concerned that he has been abused at his daycare. And she suspects a man named Ray Bucky, who is a member of the McMartin family. And one of the things that her son said was that Ray flew through the air and the police apparently took this seriously. And when they found a black robe in the closet of one of the women who ran McMartin, the McMartin preschool daycare, they took it as a black robe for a satanic ceremony, connoting that this woman was a witch. And of course, it was a graduation robe. You know, that 
that idea did not seem to enter people's minds. And I think from the beginning, what seems really odd about this is police credibility that not only are these people conducting satanic rituals, which, you know, often the kids will describe animal slaughter because, of course, what happens is that, and Michelle remembers, uh, Michelle believed that she recovered memories of having to sacrifice animals to Satan, specifically white kittens, many, many, many white kittens. And because of that, the social workers and police officers who are trying in good faith to understand, did child abuse take place here? How much of it was there? And what can we do about it to make sure this community is safe? Something they are being taught to treat as gospel is the idea that if there is any whiff of child abuse in a daycare situation, that suggests that Satanists are at fault because Satanists want to involve children in their rituals. Satanists would apparently love nothing more than to have low-paid jobs as childcare workers who have to do back-breaking work uh, and then can get a bunch of three- or four-year-olds to take part in a long, complicated ritual in which you can get nothing wrong or else Satan himself will not come. Uh, And he will come, apparently, if you do everything right. And one of the aspects of this is supposed to be animal sacrifice. And so from the beginning, you have tons of kids also telling stories about sacrificing animals because adults go in already believing that if they were abused at daycare, then it must be Satanist. If it's Satanist, then there's animal sacrifice. And then it's a matter of, all right, what animals did you sacrifice? It had to be something. And so these investigations are relying almost entirely on the statements of, you know, three and four-year-olds. I mean, did they actually find any material evidence or whether video or DNA evidence or, or, or something, or is it just the stories of children? I mean, really, it's not even fair to call them the stories of children because what I think we end up with is adults going in with a story and then getting children to confirm it or... You know, if you watch the videos of the McMartin children who are being questioned, there's a a lot happening. There's often a maneuver where they will be given toys and puppets to play with and told to sort of play pretend games and sort of play and then asked, you know, how does this action correspond with what you experienced at the daycare? Like, how does this relate to our line of questioning? And children are imaginative and children want to make adults happy and also know that if they're in a situation where a stranger is pressuring them to confirm a story, they don't really have power in the situation and it might make sense to go along with it. I mean, adults plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. I don't really think that it's a stretch of the imagination to imagine a a young and vulnerable child doing this. And one of the kind of false binaries that we also got in the reporting on this at the time is, you know, how dare you accuse these children of lying? Children don't lie. Lying is an adult and malicious thing to do. And it's like, I, you know, I don't think it's lying. And if it is lying, then it's doing what you have to do to get out of a room where you're with a stranger. And then, of course, later on, you know, these cases involve all kinds of children. They involve adults, uh, adults recovering or attempting to recover in the way Michelle did memories of what happened in their own childhoods. But yeah, it begins with the testimony of of essentially toddlers in the very beginning. Listening to you now, I have the same thought I have when I see a really shitty movie trailer, like a, a Geely or something like that, or <laughs> a really cringy, borderline racist commercial or something. And a thought I have is, in order to get from concept phase to the, on the screen in front of me, this idea had to pass through multiple layers of bureaucracy and administration. And and how does no one at any point in that process step up and just say, hey, whoa, whoa, fellas, let's let's step back a second here. This is a really stupid idea. And maybe we shouldn't do it, but somehow it makes it all the way through. And, and how does no one involved in all of these processes just step back, breathe and go, wait a minute, this is crazy. Well, I mean, there is a story that went viral on TikTok a couple days ago where essentially a woman was saying someone was following me around in Target or something hinky happened in Target. I am pretty sure I was about to be human trafficked. And, you know, in the past year, 
I think more than ever, we've seen just the amazing virality of human trafficking rumors, which is basically, you know, takes a lot of forms. But I, something I see repeatedly in kind of these Facebook posts and, and TikToks and things like that is like adult white women who were like in the same part of a Walmart as a man or an Eastern European lady or something like that, feeling like they were being followed or feeling like someone was behaving hinkily toward them. And basically went from that feeling straight to a very specific hypothesis, which is that I was almost human trafficked, you know, which is a term that has a ton of different definitions, some of them real and and legally valid and some of them kind of existing only on TikTok. And one of them is that human trafficking is a billion dollar enterprise in which adult white women are abducted from Target and shipped in shipping containers to Europe and then used as, you know, sex objects uh, pressed into, you know, it's this is what the Man Act describes. This is not a real thing. This idea that what people want more than anything is an unwilling, kidnapped, starving, half-blind, traumatized mom who was last seen at, at a Target. But people believe this. We're willing to believe this. And honestly, I think one of the reasons this feels true is that White women are going through a time in America where suddenly things are not all about us. And when you stand up and say, I'm a white woman, people don't put their hand on their heart and say, oh, my goodness, that must have been so hard for you. Like, it's acknowledged as hard, but it's no longer the hardest thing. And what we are talking about with these human trafficking myths is literally appropriating the history of slavery and saying it's happening now to us. And I'm standing up and saying that it's ridiculous, but... A lot of people respond to that with like, well, it's worth it to be aware. Like, prove to me that it's not true. Prove to me it's not. And you can't prove a negative. And a lot of things feel true. And if it's a scary thing and if it's being given to you with like, yeah, like some people will say this is unlikely. But if the difference between being vigilant is losing your autonomy or being kidnapped or something terrible happening to your child, you know, I honestly don't blame people who stay in the jaws of that fear too much to think too hard about it. And in terms of the satanic panic sweeping the nation, in terms of fear of child abuse, I kind of give parents a pass. It's it's more the professionals that I'm concerned about. Was there something about this particular cultural moment that made fertile soil for this kind of thing that primed people to believe this stuff? Or is this just a case of good intentions run amok or just a supernova of stupidity that just washed (laughs) over the country? Or maybe all the above. I I don't know. This is making me think of like of Oasis singing stupid supernova. Um, (laughs) I mean, I, you know, Michelle Remembers is a very strange book and there were a lot of strange books published in 1980, and almost all of them didn't inspire moral panics, like not even a little one. And so I also think that this was a case of a spark falling on very dry and ready tinder. And two of the big, well, three of the big social forces I can think of that made this sort of ready and wanting to happen was, A, the kind of, quote, discovery of child sexual abuse, which had happened pretty recently. B, the fact that women and mothers were entering the workplace in droves and people, including the women themselves, were feeling all kinds of ways about it. You know, this idea that the nuclear family is opening up to the world, I think was pretty, not new because the nuclear family itself is a new invention, but felt new to people and felt worrying. There's a certain degree of autonomy that comes when women become wage earners that kind of troubles the whole concept of patriarchy. And so I think Finding a way to amplify women's already existing guilt and fear about leaving their children to be cared for by strangers, certainly, you know, I'm not going to say that was done cynically by everyone, but I think a few people knew what they were doing, or at least believe sincerely that women shouldn't be out of the home and that when they leave the home, this is what happens. I think that was a feeling present there. And I also think that every generation that has children wants to do better than their parents did. And this began in the early 80s. And that's kind of the moment when boomers are really, really starting to have kids, I think. Well, it's also the weird contradiction, or maybe it's not a contradiction at all. But this is happening, as you've pointed out, against the backdrop of Reaganism. You know, it's morning Mm -hmm. in America and all of that. And there's a lot of economic prosperity. But that is 
coexisting alongside all this strange cultural paranoia. And I mean, do you see any relevant connections there? Yeah, I mean, I wonder what would have happened if Carter had stayed in the White House another four years. Like, probably he'd be like, now y'all stop having a satanic panic, and everyone would have not listened to him. But Definitely not. Yeah, I think Reagan's presence in the White House— Well, actually, there's a Reagan campaign ad. I want to say this is from 1984, but basically it's like— There's a bear in the woods. There's a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. It's footage of a bear lumbering around, and then... Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious. The voiceover, which is in this wonderful, deep, like, frontline baritone, is like... Since no one can really be sure who's right... So doesn't it make sense? Isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? To be afraid. If there is a bear. <laughs> That's the ad. And, like, isn't that amazing that Reagan is running on a platform of, like, there's a bear in the woods. Totally. And I see the bear, and I agree with you that there is a bear. I mean, we're, that's where we are now. It's just now it's like the bears have lasers. Well, can I ask about the bear of Satanism here, right? This is the Church of yeah. Satanism, which is the organization responsible for coordinating this nationwide web of child sex satanic ritual attacks. I mean, the hilarious part is that the Church of Satanism is real, but it's also a fucking joke, right? Like, they don't even believe in Satan, right? It's like an ironic free speech organization, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's Levian Satanism, which is the Church of Satan, and then there's the Satanic Temple, which began as an offshoot of the Church of Satan. So they're, you know, it's like Protestantism. And they're the ones who are mounting these legal challenges to anti-abortion laws, which I think is very exciting. But yeah, the Church of Satan, I think, is essentially sort of an Ayn Randian troll job. That's amazing. And none of these people believe in a deity Satan, by the way. Like, across the board, forgive me, I'm not a Satanist, but I think that the Church of Satan's general ethos is, you know, do as thou wilt, objectivism, have a naked girl lie on an altar, sometimes it's fun. And the Satanic Temple, you know, their concept of themselves as a religion has something to do with the idea of protecting secular humanism as a valid way of life. And demanding the same rights for people who don't believe in a Christian God who lives in heaven as for people who do. I've read Ayn Rand. She's an objectively shitty writer, but she's not (laughs) a Satanist. I I can say that with 100% (laughs) confidence. And like, if she is, she didn't mention it and she mentioned everything else. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. But when we're back. I'll talk with Sarah Marshall about how the satanic fear managed to spread around the country in a time before social media even existed. And not only did it spread, it even made its way into law enforcement manuals. Yeah, for real. That's after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. curious about the physics of this thing, like how Mm. it actually spread and took root. I mean, today would make a lot of sense, right? You just assume, well, it it was all over social media and it was spreading on people's, you know, news feeds or whatever. But, but how does this really get oxygen and become, you know, a kind of nationwide paranoia at that time when it was just, you know, TV and newspapers and radio? I guess that was enough. I (laughs) (laughs) I guess I answered my question. Uh, And, uh, Yeah, I think he did. And I think that's also why it was slower to gain traction. But then once 
We have McMartin in 83. Like, I think we reach a tipping point with these things or a saturation point, whatever you want to call it. And whatever form of media you're using, it dictates the the amount of time it takes to get there to some extent. Um, but also, I think police training, social worker training, that was huge. The fact that Michelle remembers, like, Michelle remembers sold well, but it, it wasn't successful in that sort of cultural pop bestseller phenomenon way that I think the publisher was hoping for. But it did get treated as a nonfiction book that could be read by cops and social workers who were receiving training. And I mean, I can't, I cannot stress enough the supernaturalness of this book. Uh, Jesus is a character. The Virgin Mary is a character. Michelle recovers a word I'm using in quotes with the other word in quotes, help of her therapist memories of having satanic horns and a tail sewn onto her body and having teeth pulled out and receiving all these scars from physical trauma and the Virgin Mary makes them all go away. And that's that's how that works, which like if you're reading that book is kind of a story that you're searching for personal meaning and a way to come to grips with your own trauma, I think that's fine. But if you're using it in law enforcement training and like as a way to understand what you truly believe to be happening in North America, then that's just, I can't, people did that. I can't believe that. But I cannot believe that. How does that book make it into training manuals for law enforcement? How does that happen? I think partly also the fact that America is not a secular country. We just sort of say we are, but I mean, many people aren't even claiming that, right? Like the whole, many Americans call America a Christian nation and always have. And I feel as if the implicit bias toward Christian supernatural events is very strong and very visible in this. I mean, honestly, I am baffled still and I'm sure that a lot of people in law enforcement read the whole thing, which, by the way, like it's very tedious in the beginning and then it really starts to get wild in the last couple hundred pages. So it's like, how many people read the whole book? Is that part of it? Probably. But I'm sure a lot of people read it and scoffed at it and thought, you know, I don't think that this supernatural event is taking place, but we have to be vigilant about these cults who believe in Satan. I mean, another thing is that Jonestown, you know, the Jonestown massacre happens in 1978. And I do think that that was a horror that we did not know how to assimilate consciously. And I think that some of it came out here, this idea that who knows how much slaughter and destruction people are capable of if they were operating in a cult that you have never heard of before in your life. But, you know, the thing about Jim Jones is that he wasn't selling Satanism. He was selling Christianity. Mm. Well, before we fast forward a little bit in time to today, I, I don't mm. want to gloss over something you alluded to a few minutes ago, mm. which is that there was in the, I guess, the mid late 70s, a kind of awakening around the problem of child sex abuse and the fact that it actually occurred for the most part inside the home, that if, if a child was abused sexually, he or she was overwhelmingly likely to have been abused by their father or somebody they know very personally, a member of the family or a friend of the family or something like that. And this, this whole scourge, whatever you want to call it, was a way of, of responding to that or addressing that, but it does it in a way that diverts attention away from the home, outside the home. Mm -hmm. And that, I don't, I don't even know how I feel about that. It, it just feels kind of perverse <laughs> and, and, and just sad in a way, but maybe also not accidental. I'm, I'm curious what you think. Hmm. Well, it reminds me of a thing that happens in horror movies, which is one of the classic, like, don't do that thing things that people always do, which is, you know, you're being chased, you run into the house and then you run upstairs and suddenly now you have nowhere to go. Um, and you did that not because it was a safe place, but because it felt safe because it always has been before. And I feel as if the satanic panic creates in us the idea that we just have to rush back into the home, no matter how bad it may be, like whatever's outside has to be worse. And I think it was so horrible also to realize at this time, partly because of women's lib, partly because women were occupying spaces in society that elevated them in some way where they were able to use their voices to talk about what they had experienced and therefore to hear each other and understand that it wasn't just them, which I think so many so many people uh, grew up believing, especially at that time and before. And I think that the recognition simultaneously that, you know, these abuse stories often have something in common. They 
often are things carried out by men who don't seem to see themselves as doing anything particularly wrong. And that also we live in a society where like women really in the 70s, like we're just beginning to make a way for themselves as wage earners on a scale where it was possible to imagine a single mother taking care of children and not having them constantly in jeopardy, where a woman could actually begin to imagine operating in society, you know, and having her own credit card and having a home and not being, you know, inherently vulnerable, inherently incapable, I guess, for not having a man to be attached to. Like, I think that idea was so inaccessible for so many people that the idea that like this abuse is happening, it's part of our world. And one of the ways to mitigate it is to create a world where women have more power, where mothers have more power, where children have more power for that matter, because children have very compromised rights. And often the kind of safety they can expect comes down to what their adult guardians are able or willing to provide for them. And that's, you know... The idea that the nuclear family is inherently fine, can basically take care of itself. Like, yes, there are a few bad apples, but everyone forgets the last half of that saying, which is a few bad apples spoil the batch, whatever. Um, I think the satanic panic was also a way of just seeing where the danger was coming from and just being unwilling and in many cases, literally unable to accept that, you know, the solution was getting out of the house. Because to accept that you have to get out of the house, you have to be able to get out of the house. And how much real world damage was caused by all of this to the children, to the accused, to parents, to whomever? Yeah. I mean, people went to prison, some of them for decades. Some people are in prison still because of accusations that either were entirely of satanic panic origin or were kind of trumped up in a satanic panic atmosphere. People have grown up believing that they experienced satanic ritual abuse that in some cases in adulthood or later on in in childhood or adolescence or just at some later stage in the day have said, you know, I don't actually think that happened and then have to figure that out. And also, you know, if you're a professional operating in this world, then you also have to deal with the fact that you were trained to believe things that were demonstrably untrue and that your profession either failed you or attempted to do so. And I, to me, kind of, I, I also see the legacy of the satanic panic in my own upbringing because I was born in 1988. And so as kind of a millennial on the younger side of that generation, like this was after the better part of a decade's worth of sustained terror on behalf of parents, terror at the concept of daycare, terror at the concept of strangers. You know, this is also the 80s brought us the stranger danger panic, the idea that children are being constantly abducted in gigantic numbers by strangers, which just, again, those numbers never matched up to reality in terms of the numbers of stranger abductions of children that happen. And I feel as if I and so many people my age that I was really shaped by being raised by parents who were constantly terrified and for the most part of imaginary things. And I didn't spend very much time being taken care of by strangers or with other kids for that matter because my parents were terrified of daycare. And one of the reasons for that was because that's where the Satanists are, like I feel frustrated by the concept that the 80s, I think, taught parents to take as gospel that inside the family is always better than not because I was raised largely by my father and he didn't want to raise a little kid and he made no secret about that. And so I grew up knowing that I was being taken care of by someone who resented me, but it was safer than the imaginary Satanists. And I'm mad about that. I have unfinished business with the satanic panic. And yet it never really went away. Right. I mean, do you see cute? Yeah. You, the satanic panic has unfinished business with us, as it turns out. <laughs> it won't die. Do you see QAnon <laughs> as a kind of natural extension of the 80s satanic panic? Or is it, Oh yeah. you know, sufficiently different that it has to be seen as a different species of panic? Well, okay. You know how in the Friday the 13th movies, like first Jason is just a big guy who just kind of lumbers around and kills teenagers And then he gets killed and resurrected like several times. And the teens at the camp always think that like these are the first people that this has ever happened to. But as the viewer, you're like, there's Jason again. (laughs) 
<laughs> there he goes. Like, so I think QAnon is like Friday the 13th, six Jason, where he's like, you know, electrocuted and walks out of the grave and kills Horshack and then is like, I'm getting too old for this, you know? Like, this is a satanic panic. And it's like Nick Nolte years, just like, (laughs) why does this keep happening? But yeah, it is 100% the satanic panic. And I think it's really interesting and telling that I think QAnon really went mainstream last summer when, you know, what had, in my opinion, began as essentially a fan fiction that explains how Trump is doing a good job, actually, and then got more and more ornate and upsetting because... You just have to believe more and more in ornate theories to think Trump is somehow doing a good job or did a good job. Um, I think that those stories and those theories went mainstream partly because we had the whole Wayfair story, which is the idea that Wayfair is the furniture company is trafficking children in cabinets. And this is where these abducted children are ending up. It's all a corporate thing. And also with these kind of viral memes that I I think I most saw on Instagram, but I'm sure we're all over all different platforms, that your child is far more likely to be abducted and human trafficked than they are to catch COVID or to die of COVID. This idea that masks and masking your child are actually a way to make them more trafficable because apparently people are insecure about recognizing their own children. And this idea that if you are living in an administration or in a society that is putting your child in danger through its apparent complete inability to care about mass death, I guess, which is what the situation was at the time, then like, again, you distract yourself by inventing something bigger to be scared of. And if the real thing you have to be scared of is pretty big and pretty scary, you you find yourself, I guess, coming up with something truly elaborate and just, again, like, not even from a horror movie, but from a late horror movie sequel. I mean, isn't there like like a meme or something going around right now when, you know, QAnon, Instagram or Twitter or wherever that says 800,000 children were abducted last year or every year or something like that? And I've heard you point out that there were like less than 200 Amber Alerts yeah. Last year, which would mean like literally hundreds and thousands of parents just, you know, like came home from, you know, bingo or happy hour and discovered that their kid was gone and just said, well, shit, tough break. Yeah. And just went on with their life. You know, I didn't like Timmy that much. She was kind of dirty. Yeah. I, th- I think my co-host Michael Hobbs pointed that out on an episode. He's the great statistics debunker. But yeah, I mean, just if you look at the number of parents who apparently just came home, found out that their child is just vanished in a thin air, presumably being sold and shipped to a Wayfair customer and are just like, eh, you know, that seems like a bigger national crisis in a way. And also then, like, do any of these kids' friends or relatives or hockey coaches or anything, like, do they ever ask questions or do they also hate Timmy? Like, what's going on there? Everyone hates Timmy. Well, look, lest anyone out there thinks that QAnon is a more sophisticated iteration of the satanic panic, I mean— Some of the beliefs of QAnon followers are that, you know, these like rich globalists are slaughtering children and then mainlining their blood in order to stay young and and like making shoes out of their organs or whatever the Mm -hmm. hell it is. I mean, it's even crazier in some ways, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too. I mean, with the satanic panic, there's some supernatural stuff in there. Like some satanic panic believers like also believe that You can, you know, with godly powers, heal the scars of a child and fly through the air and and get Satan himself to appear at your ritual. And like, that's pretty out there. But on the other hand, people have been claiming to see Satan for hundreds of years. It's really nothing new. Like for as long as we've been in America, we've been claiming to see Satan. And like, if I were talking to someone who was like, a devout Catholic or something like that, and they told me that like, they saw Satan, I would be like, you know what? Sure. I'm not going to be a pain in the ass to you. Like, I accept that. Like, whatever. And I would respect that memory because, again, like, if we're not basing national policy off of people's experiences, they can experience whatever they want. But, yeah, one of the core beliefs of QAnon conspiracy theories is that Tom Hanks is, like, one of the big child torturing and murdering Illuminati in this scenario. And it's like, Really? You think that? Like, you didn't grow up watching Turner and Hooch 
And your, when you take your kids to Disney World, can they ride, you know, Buzz Lightyear? Or do you not take them to Disney World because they're being run by Pixar money and Tom Hanks is Woody? Like, have you divested yourself of Disney? Just like, I am willing to accept people believing in Satan, like, miles before I can accept that they think Tom Hanks is making shoes out of children's skin. Now, look, I buy Tom Cruise, but Tom Hanks, no, 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 no. That's where I draw a line. I mean, and Rita Wilson, and then Rita would be in on it too. Like, really? QAnon seems way more mainstream and pervasive, but maybe Mm. that's just a product of the digital era, you know, where, where information just travels at light speed in a way it didn't, you know, in the 80s and 90s? Or do you think there's some other reason why... You know, look, thousands of daycare parents didn't storm the Capitol, for instance, Mm. you know, in like 86 or whatever. But that just happened a few months ago. Is that more a product of just the information environment we're in or is there something different? Well, I also wonder what would have happened if the president had essentially told them to, right? Like we also... There's that. Like it's hard to discount just the effects on, on people, not just generally, but like over time of having a president who validates your most outrageous fears and anxieties and conspiracy theories. And I mean, the funny thing about Trump, too, is that, like, you had to platform these conspiracy theories in order to say the news every day. So it's like this was the time when I just stopped listening to NPR, which just used to be constantly on in the background of my life. You know, because I'm a triggered lib and because it felt like listening to Alex Jones or something. Like, I mean, Reagan's relationship to the satanic panic, I feel like, was much less intimate than what we had between Trump and QAnon and I guess continue to have, really. And I think, I don't know. I, I mean, the Internet seems like a huge part of this, but I tend to think that having Trump in office was even bigger. Yeah, and, and I will say the framing of these things is perfectly calibrated to capture you know, otherwise well-intentioned people. I mean, you know, how can you not take a stand against pedophilia mm-hmm. or child trafficking or child sex abuse? Who doesn't want to save the children? I mean, you have to be a monster right, to not get exercised yeah. about this stuff. So there's that going on. And I do, I do get that. Right. And this is another thing that I think makes it hard uh, historically for people to stand up and say, I really don't think that's true because there's the idea that if you're saying, I don't think this many children are being abducted, I don't think that children are being trafficked in this way that you're afraid that there's a liberal conspiracy to make happen. And I mean, I think another thing is that people gravitate towards these theories because it is a way of addressing their own trauma some of the time. And that's some of the baggage that people bring to these movements. And I have no doubt that a lot of the people who believe in QAnon are against sexual abuse because it has touched them and traumatized them in some way. And this is a way of feeling that you are combating sexual abuse uh, in a way that has received support from the most recent president who was known for sexually abusing people. So like, you know, it is a cover for the sexually abused with impunity class to get the masses to look the other way, I think. And it's also, you know, anything fueled by the power of true belief is just so much more complicated and powerful for that. And I think the fact that that power exists is good. Like we need to do more. We just need to do other things. And do you see lower level panics over, you know, uh, Marilyn Manson or goth culture or, you know, hip hop in the nineties or, you know, the super predator narrative, all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you, do you see that as comparable to the satanic panic and QAnon, or is that something altogether different? To me, it's different because I think, you know, what really captured my interest about the satanic panic initially and made it so hard for me to ever leave the subject area was that, like, this didn't happen. Like, there weren't satanic cults. Like, it would be different if you were like, oh, yeah, well, there was, like, one satanic cult that was running a daycare in Albuquerque, and then people got hypervigilant about it because of that. It's like, no, like, there never was. And then again, like, you can't prove a negative, and so people still today can be like, yeah, we never found evidence of it because the Satanists are so powerful. Duh. They concealed the evidence because Satanists can do that. And if you believe they're supernatural, all the better. But to me, it's more comparable to, like, the killer clowns panic, which is, you know, a panic a few years ago that some people in a position to know better took pretty seriously, which is like scary clowns are going to be a problem. 
And it's like, that was an idea that tapped into some maybe kind of mythological part of our collective subconscious that just, you know, meshed with our very present day-to-day vigilance for our children and just somehow seemed plausible. But, you know, there's just nothing there. There's no actual grain of real crime that it seems to be built around. Speaking of our, our collective subconscious, I mean, what does all of this suggest to you about the American psyche, about our cultural DNA? I mean, are we just uniquely weird or just too damn bored or or what? Well, I mean, we had satanic panics in other places, too. This whole thing originates in Canada, and I know it's shown up in the UK and in New Zealand, and I'm sure lots of other countries I'm not thinking of or don't know about yet. But I uh, have only experienced being an American. I do think we're very weird. You know, we were founded partly by people who thought that Satan and demons were part of everyday life and were constantly trying to tempt them. And that character has just been with us since the Puritans came, since before. And so it, it seems as if Satan is just maybe part of our national DNA in a way that as we entered into a modern latter half of the 20th century era, you know, the time of science, the time of the space race, like this was also the time when evangelicals kind of came into the White House when Reagan let them in through the back door. And this was the time when we started to see real power, real money in evangelical voting blocks. And that coming as a response to this era of science and progress and technological innovation seems relevant. And also the fact that a Christian nation will always think about Satan. And, you know, I know a lot of people who define America that way are concerned that Satan is stealing the country out from under them. But, you know, if we're talking about Satan, that means that we're a Christian country still, for better or worse. That's wild. The satanic panic actually started in Canada. I I didn't know that. Well, I mean, I guess some people might think that's too unambiguous a statement because Michelle and her therapist were in Canada. So that story happened in Victoria, British Columbia. And then the publisher was American. And the McMartin case, of course, was in California. So... But yeah, it's a co-production, you know, it's like um, (laughs) The (laughs) X-Files. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, do these panics over outlandish things function as a kind of diversion? Do we get freaked out over secret devil worship to distract us from our real problems as a society? That's after the break. I mentioned this earlier, but I just I want to bring it up one last time before we finish, because I'm really curious what you make of this recurring fact where we see a willingness in this country to glance at these real problems, dark problems, child abuse, crime, race, misogyny, poverty, whatever. But then also a complete unwillingness to diagnose those problems honestly or diagnose them in a way that makes a solution even possible. What do you make of that part of it? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the recurring themes, too, is that, and this is something we talk about a lot on You're Wrong About, as Americans at our mainstream discourse, we're often like, what's the solution? What can we do about, you know, infant mortality or child abuse or domestic violence or a whole host of problems that we kind of act as if they have no solution? And a lot of the time there is a solution, but the solution is money, money for babies, money for people who are about to have babies, like welfare, healthcare, infrastructure, nanny state, whatever you want to call it. The answer a lot of the times, I think, is for people to have financial resources that they can then use to save themselves or to make their circumstances better or to not have to live with some guy who is taking care of them because financially there is nothing else to be done or you know, to not have to be taking care of a baby despite the fact that they can't afford a crib and no one will give them them. Like, to me, like some of the biggest problems in America have pretty clear solutions and they involve giving relatively small amounts of money to people who need it. But because we're also a capitalist country, we want to pretend that those solutions don't exist. 
And they're not perfect, but Money for Babies is my platform. I'm pretty passionate about it. Part of me thinks a lot of people don't really care about the things they pretend to care about or claim to care about, that what they're actually after is diversion or entertainment or the intoxication of uncovering hidden truths and everything else is just Mm. a prop. But maybe that's maybe I'm being unfair. I feel like the answer is usually both. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, I think also like the intoxication of anger or of outrage Mm. is really something like I personally am not drawn to being part of a crowd that is reacting to something because that feels to me like swimming in an undertow. You know, like I can't tell what I'm feeling or what everyone else is feeling around me and I'm just kind of harmonizing with. And I really like to go and sit quietly and sort of, you know, write in my journal and try and figure out what I think. And that takes time and that takes potentially thinking things that other people could never possibly agree with and kind of needing to occupy a space that maybe you can't find in the crowd. And maybe it feels good to be part of a crowd. And maybe it feels good to feel something with a bunch of other people all together. Like that's why we have the Olympics, I think. Maybe if we'd had the Olympics last summer, we might have been a little bit less cuckoo bananas. It's hard to say. We spent a lot of time talking about things that people shouldn't be panicking over, but did. But I'm curious if you think that obscures actual things worth panicking about that we don't because we're obsessed over these non-stories and non-events. Hmm. I think panicking is for the disco. And I think, you know, just the concept of a panic, like we began to call this the satanic panic, I think, based on the realization that this felt a little weird, like this felt like a disproportionate response and... The idea of panicking around something to me suggests that you are not in a space for critical thinking. And I feel like the idea of urgency without panic is really, it's like, it's hard to wrap your head around, I think. I think that um, another thing about living in our world and our media landscape is that we are every day confronted with many more pressing issues, many more crises than we could possibly even learn about in the day, let alone do something about. And I think, you know, another thing that probably is familiar to a lot of us is the feeling of needing to throw yourself into an area that needs your help and then becoming overwhelmed and burning out. And so I think kind of unfortunately, in a way that maybe runs counter to our instincts, like we have to learn how to live calmly in a place where we can see bad things happening in the world all around us and just to sort of, to be able to find a way to orient our whole lives, like the time span that we will hopefully have in front of us to figuring out how to use the time and the energy that we have, not all of it every day, not so much of it that we can't endure or that we feel like we're, we're constantly in a state of emergency yeah, I think, unfortunately, like it, it sounds counterintuitive, but I think being calm is key. And I think also just the idea that like it, you are required to be in a state of emotional upset to express your awareness of the seriousness of the situation. Like your emotions getting intense is a way of you processing something difficult and figuring out that something matters and that it's going to be something that is important to you perhaps, but um, you being in a state of emotional discomfort isn't intrinsically helpful. I think we have to learn that too. Do you think we're getting more or less equipped to resist these sorts of panics? I mean, to me, the answer seems pretty obviously no. And I I worry Mm -hmm. that our brains just aren't really (laughs) wired to defend against the rhetorical and the psychological pull of these sorts of you know, narratives or stories and, you know, in the age of, of memes and super duper official looking studies and stats, we seem fucked, but it, <laughs> and I'm serious. I mean, but is, is yeah, that, you know, no, if you want to walk me yeah. back from the cliff, please, please do so. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with you because that seems minimizing. Like I'm scared as hell. And, uh, you know, I think if you'd asked me this same question two years ago, I'd be like, well, no, I don't know. And now I'm like, you know what? Like, 
I am amazed. I am fully, endlessly, every day amazed. Like, as amazed as I was when I first saw Cats, the movie, by my fellow Americans. I am amazed that, like, rather than, like, do what for many of us is logistically the easier thing and try to not kill each other, we have decided to actively try to kill each other because some mean guy told us to and because it's insulting to put some cloth over your face, even if you live in the upper Midwest and we'd be doing that anyway, because it's winter and it makes your skin hurt. I re- yeah, it's hard to feel hope for America because just the fact that we are living in a death cult is like quite apparent. Like I don't feel myself to belong to the death cult and I don't subscribe to the beliefs, but I'm living inside the compound And I got to say, like, the only thing that gives me hope is teenagers on TikTok (laughs) (laughs) and teenagers in other places. But like something that I find interesting about growing up a millennial is something I think of often as a context for that is in network when our main character is having an affair with the Faye Dunaway character, he's remarking on the fact that, like, she grew up watching TV, which he didn't do. He works in TV, but he wasn't a child when TV was around. It's something he came to as an adult. So, like, he's on the inside, but he doesn't understand it the way someone who grew up in that world does. And he's kind of disturbed by her. I think he sees her as someone whose moral compass was shaped by cartoons, and she just seems morally vacant because she was raised on TV. And I think that was the fear that, like, the more we were raised by these sort of cynical network garbage that was being manufactured by adults who, like, were happy to make money off of it for their children but didn't necessarily want their kids to watch what they were making, the fear was that we would get worse and worse. And I think what's happened is that each successive generation has gotten savvier about the media that people of their parents' generation can successfully use to snow each other. And I think, you know, millennials— are very savvy about the kinds of media scandals and just baseless attempts to malign women and people of color that absolutely flew in the 90s and received almost no pushback, partly because technologically it wasn't possible. Like, I think people of my generation have been, like, we know what it's like to be pandered to. We can't be tricked by editing the way people in our parents' generation, I think, much more easily can be. And I think You know, by that metric, Zoomers are uh, the generation who are raised with just a level of media savviness that I can't possibly aspire to. And I'm not saying they're going to save us because they shouldn't have to. I want them to have fun and do gap years and do whatever they want. But like teens on TikTok give me hope. I'll say that. (laughs) Well, look, and I'll say, you know. Maybe in defense of of some of the olds who get more sucked into this stuff that, you know, look, we we live in a, a big buzzing, abstract, overly complex world that no one can understand from their narrow and significant vantage point. And I guess I have some sympathy for people who get sucked into these rabbit holes of conspiracy because they at least offer a sanctuary of stability and certainty. And I get that. Mm. Yeah. Even if it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's like, I think people lead themselves or each other into absolutely indefensible beliefs out of a sincere desire to make the world make sense in some way. And like the fact that QAnon is what it takes for people to make sense of the world is, you know, it's an indictment of the world that existed for the time leading up to this, I guess. And um, I want to give us credit for the fact that we're trying. I think everyone really wants to, like, take care of their family and watch their children play in the sunshine. And just the fact that we have ended up here out of that basic desire is um, yikes. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I'll I'll wrap this up. But I I do want to thank you again for coming on the program today. I I think your podcast is amazing. And I urge people to listen to it. You and Michael are doing, pun intended, the, the Lord's work. So keep it up. (laughs) Well, this was really such a wonderful conversation. And I I mean, really, like you just let me sort of think out loud about things that I'm trying to figure out. And I really, I appreciate that so much. And um, because we are now in the darkest place possible, can I end with a joke? Please, God, please. Okay. Where does the general keep his armies? I don't know. In his sleeveys. (laughs) Uh, I love it. I love it. 
<laughs> That's the kind of joke I like where there's a silence and then someone goes, ugh. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drazdowska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And hey, if you have future ideas for guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.